Welcome to Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur, where I drink, discuss, and discover the world of distilled spirits. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. This is episode 44, and I'm drinking Bombay Sapphire London Dry Gin. As a listener to the show, you should expect that I'll be well-researched and educational, also entertaining and consistent in my reviews. I chose Bombay Sapphire for this episode because I haven't yet featured a gin. This is the 44th episode, and without featuring gin, I'm overlooking an entire category of spirits. So, venturing into gin, Bombay Sapphire is a great place to start. It's probably the first call liquor I ever ordered at a bar when I was of age. It's also super popular, so why not start here? The bottle of Bombay Sapphire I have for this tasting is a standard 750 milliliter. It is 47% alcohol by volume, or 94 proof, and it retails at about $22. So not bad. The bottle that Bombay comes in is very distinctive. The glass is a blue sapphire color. It's square with knocked off corners and a short shoulder with a stubby neck. The label is white with a printed linen texture. It gives it a nice feel. There's also a gold foil embossing around it to give it a classy look. The top half of the front label features a bejeweled brooch with a portrait of Queen Victoria in it. It's surrounded by some sapphires and a large sapphire below the portrait. And then the words Bombay and Sapphire arc around the top and bottom of this. Below this, there's text describing it as a distilled London dry gin that's vapor-infused. It also has the British spelling of vapor with an extra U. And then near the bottom, there's text that says, From a 1761 Recipe. Imported, product of England, and then the size and proof. The bottle is topped off by a very dark blue, nearly black metal screw cap with a paper seal that reads imported, very large. The back label provides a little bit of text I'd call marketing fluff and the business ends of things regarding government warnings, barcodes, etc. The sides of the bottle feature direct printing. It's a silkscreen effect, not baked on, but it lists the 10 hand-selected botanicals that are used to flavor the gin each with a little illustration. Overall, the presentation makes for a very fancy looking bottle. It's in a premium category. All right, so enough description. Let's go ahead and open this bottle. I have not opened it. I like to open bottles while I'm recording so that you get my original reaction, kind of first reaction when I open the spirit. So here we go. Crack the little metal off, cap down. And I will be tasting with a clean Glencairn glass. It's a nosing glass, usually used for whiskey, but it really allows you to enjoy the spirit. So let's go for a pour. Poured into the glass, of course, this gin looks as clear as gin, which is a saying that dates to at least the 1860s, and I found a reference to it that described it as a sailor's best compliment to the water. Clear as gin. On the nose... Of course, juniper comes forward because juniper is the predominant flavor of gin, but there's more. There's some floral and citrus to it. Yeah, I can pick up some of the botanicals. They're all listed on the side of the bottle, so you can kind of pick and choose. If you read that there's lemon peel in it, you'll get a citrus smell when you get your nose into the glass. There's a little bit of... um, what I'd refer to as just an alcohol scent, an ethanol flavor, perhaps. That may be the juniper. 
It smells like gin. So that's one of the things If again, I've used this description with whiskey and other spirits, tequila, for instance. If you've smelled one of the spirits, oftentimes others in the category should smell like them if they're made in a similar manner. So Bombay Sapphire smells like a gin. All right, let's go for a taste. I don't think I've ever had it neat before. It's quite light and floral. You get the juniper, but that's not the first thing I get. Let's go for another taste. It's almost creamy on the palate, which is, for me, I find that a little interesting. It's also a little bit spicy, and I can taste in the aftertaste more of the licorice and hints of bitterness that probably come from the angelica root and the licorice in it. It's good, though. It's bright, floral. There's juniper, but it's quite nice. All right, so let's talk about the history of Bombay Sapphire. It was launched in 1987, so it's not that old of a brand, actually. But before we go down the road of Bombay Sapphire's story, I feel like I need to lay the groundwork around gin as a category of spirit. This could be exhaustive, and there's been books written on it, so I'll aim for the highlights while attempting to convey points most relevant to Bombay Sapphire itself. There are plenty of other gins I can feature in future episodes where I can expand upon this foundation, so let's get to it. Gin is basically flavored vodka. It's really the first flavored vodka, but it's in a class of its own due to the one key ingredient that defines gin, which is juniper. According to one of the books I have in my liquor library, entitled Gin Made Me Do It by Jazzy Davis, the first recorded juniper-flavored distilled spirit dates to 11th century Benedictine monks from northern Italy. They were distilling a juniper-infused wine into what was described as a fiery juniper-flavored or at least scented spirit using an early amblic still. But gin as we may recognize it today owes its heritage to the Dutch in the 16th century, and distilling was more refined as a science, though far from perfected. But distilling was a common practice by the 16th century at least. In Holland, which incidentally is not a country but provinces of North and South Holland within the country of the Netherlands, whose people are Dutch and speak Dutch, grain harvests were good and there was ample supply for distillation. And as a major European trading port, Amsterdam, the capital of the Netherlands, again located in the province of North Holland, had access to exotic spices to flavor their distilled spirits. They also had an ample supply of local juniper that someone decided would be a good flavor addition to the spirits. Thus was born an inexpensive spirit the Dutch called Geneva. Geneva is the mother of gin, from which the scion of true gin, as we know it today, and in particular, London Dry, the most common form, sprang forth. Geneva made its way to England with English soldiers returning home in 1585 after Queen Elizabeth I sent some to help the Dutch fight for independence. Those returning soldiers had developed a taste for the spirit, and by 1621, it's said that London had at least 200 distilleries producing gin for a thirsty public. England fell in love with gin, to a fault. By 1743, it's recorded that some 8 million gallons were drunk in a year in England and Wales. Drunkenness abounded, and a full-on gin craze swept the country. Often referred to as mother's ruin, it inflicted real pain on society, typified by a famous print from 1751 titled Gin Lane by William Hogarth. 
Gin Lane was a propaganda piece in support of a 1751 Gin Act that was passed by Parliament in an effort to control gin consumption. Gin Lane was one half of a pair of propaganda pieces created for this. Gin Lane depicted the evils of gin consumption compared to the benefits of Beer Street and English Ale. English Ale consumption was viewed as healthy and depicted in a lighthearted, beneficial way. Gin Lane, however, depicts the evils of gin consumption, though thought to be satire. It shows addiction, starvation, infanticide, suicide, even cannibalism. It seemed to have had an effect because the Gin Act did pass in 1751. To understand a little better the evils of gin from the 1700s, it's good to understand a little more about the science and fermentation and distillation. In fermentation, yeast not only produces ethanol, the kind of alcohol we like, but also methanol, which is chemically different, though still a hydroxyl group, which is a hydrogen atom attached to an oxygen atom bonded to a carbon atom that itself is bonded to something else. And the something else part is what separates ethanol from methanol. Methanol tastes and smells like ethanol, and it'll get you drunk. But the human body processes methanol differently than ethanol. Methanol is broken down into formaldehyde, which isn't great in the body, but what's worse is the formaldehyde is broken down into formic acid or formate. And this substance inhibits the human body's cells from using oxygen. The most susceptible parts of the human body are those that use a lot of oxygen, and the eyes are a heavy user. So with consumption of methanol, the effects can cut off the oxygen to the optic nerve and you'll go blind. That's one of the first signs of methanol poisoning. So the old adage that some moonshine or bathtub gin will make you go blind can be true. So because fermentation gives us methanol and ethanol, water and other chemical compounds all together in a crude beer or what you'd refer to as a wash if you were talking about whiskey production, it's the distiller's job to separate these chemical compounds and that's what the still is for. In distillation, methanol evaporates first. It has a lower boiling point than ethanol. And ethanol has a lower boiling point than water. So a distiller will boil the crude beer or the wash, and the first vapors to evaporate will be the methanol. This is referred to as the heads of distillation. It's the first spirit that you get out of a still. And this is what the distiller should throw away because it's not safe for consumption. What they want to keep is the heart, which is the middle part of the distillation. And this is primarily the ethanol. The ethanol having boiled off before the water starts to boil off. And so if the distiller has the proper equipment and skills, they can get rid of the first part, the heads, the methanol, and just keep the heart, which is the ethanol, and discard also the tails, which is the last bit when the boiling gets hotter and other chemical compounds that are heavier come through. These oftentimes impart flavor though, so often with whiskeys and stuff, the design of the still is intended to allow some of these heavier compounds of the tails to come through, and they're usually fairly safe for consumption. Anyway, all of this chemical and distillation detail is to say that back in the day, unscrupulous distillers would often knowingly keep some of the methanol in the gin to help increase the yield, or they weren't skilled enough to separate it out. Point is, gin in the era of the Gin Lane propaganda piece wasn't just the result of normal drunkenness. It's reasonable to say that some of it was actual poison. 
So gin was a real problem in England, so enter London Dry as a style of gin which arose as a guarantee of quality through controlled production methods. Gin has about four main recognized styles. There's London Dry that I'll detail a bit more, but also Old Tom Gin, which is sweetened and takes its name from the streets, referring to essentially what we'd call here in the United States bathtub gin, or a poor quality spirit that may or may not be safe to drink but it had sweeteners and other additives to mask the flavor and or danger. Nowadays, though, Old Tom is a safe and sweeter style of gin that you can get. There's also what I'd refer to as the Lone Wolf of Plymouth Gin. That is only made in Plymouth, England by one distillery. It's a style unto its own, but it's one gin. It's a category of one. And then there's Geneva, which these days is similar to what we know as gin, but it's made with malted grains. There are some variations within these categories as well, but suffice it to say, London Dry became the most prominent style. So, what is London Dry Gin? First off, it doesn't have anything to do with being made in London. Not anymore. The European Union has codified it. It describes a quality control designation for gin. There's a lot to it, but the basics are the base spirit must be distilled from agriculturally sourced ingredients, i.e. grain, to at least 96% alcohol by volume, requiring a continuous or column still to yield what is a neutral spirit, vodka. It must then be redistilled in the presence of juniper and other botanicals. To be dry, it must have not more than 0.1 grams of sweetening product per liter, so no added sugar. And finally, by regulation, it cannot contain more than a tiny amount of methanol, 5 grams per hectoliter. Some may sneak through, and there's some methanol in nearly all commercially available distilled spirit, but in such tiny amounts it won't hurt you. So London Dry is a pure style of gin. However, the regulations don't dictate the other botanicals, nor limit them, and allows for a great bit of freedom within the form. London Dry therefore has nothing to do with a flavor profile, other than there being juniper and not sweet. You can get a range of flavors under the designation. Okay, so that's enough of what gin is for this episode. Back to Bombay Sapphire. As I said, it was launched in 1987, but it's a premium brand extension of Bombay Dry Gin, which is made with eight botanicals to Sapphire's 10. Bombay Dry Gin was launched in the early 1960s before vodka had a hold on American drinkers' palates and when gin martinis were still common. An enterprising American entrepreneur named Alan Sorbin went looking for a new gin to import. He found G&J Grenell's Warrington Gin, made in Warrington, England, who traced their roots back to 1761 when their founder, Thomas Dakin, built a distillery and created one of the earliest known gin recipes. G&J Greenhall had expanded operations in 1961, allowing them to get into contract distilling. Alan Sorbin struck a deal with them to essentially repackage their gin as Bombay Dry Gin for the American market. He chose Queen Victoria for the label for looks and stuck the 1761 date on the bottle to reference the date of Thomas Dakin's compiled list of botanicals. And ta-da, a new, old gin was born. Nearly 30 years later, Carillon Importers, who was importing Bombay Dry Gin, decided there was potential in Bombay as a brand. The company's CEO, Michael Rue, is a man most famous for bringing absolute vodka to prominence through his clever marketing and brand-building abilities starting in the early 1980s. 
Seeing that Bombay dry gin indeed had real provenance, hailing from a distillery in England that traced its roots back to 1761, Michael Rue thought he could do something with it to breathe new life into the gin brand and gin as a category. Obviously, with a big stake in vodka with Absolute, the Bombay brand wasn't viewed as competitive or one that would cannibalize sales. Or if it was, not so much that it stopped him from creating Bombay Sapphire. It's said that it was a nearly two-year process of refinement to evolve what was still G&J Grenell's Warrington Gin, repackaged as Bombay Dry Gin, into what became Sapphire. The master distiller and Michael Rue ended up adding two new botanicals to the original mix, but kept it light to appeal to vodka drinkers. Marketing, brand story, and the physical appearance of the product, the packaging, trade dress, or get-up, played a big role. Bombay Sapphire leaned into the loose connection between the brand and the birth of the gin and tonic cocktail, as well as the imperial nature of featuring Queen Victoria on the label. It's said that the Sapphire name hints at the origins of gin's popularity in India during the British Raj, or occupation, from the mid-1800s to the mid-1900s. And the sapphire that lends its name to the gin is a 182-carat gemstone known as the Star of Bombay. This gem is a cabochon-cut star sapphire, which is an oval-domed stone that reflects a six-armed star due to the natural inclusions of a needle-like rutilite mineral throughout. The Star of Bombay was actually mined in Sri Lanka, not India, but because of the Bombay name, it was a perfect fit for the improved gin. Incidentally, the Star of Bombay Sapphire is part of the Smithsonian Museum collection. Bombay Sapphire was made to be premium, and the taste in the story made it a success. Diageo, the global spirits conglomerate, ended up owning the Bombay brand, and in 1998, it was sold to Bacardi as part of a $1.94 billion deal that included Dewar's White Label Whiskey. Under Bacardi's ownership, Bombay Sapphire continued to grow, selling 1,000,009 liter case equivalents in the year 2000, and by 2019, they were selling around 4.7 million cases, making it the number three best-selling gin in the world, behind Gordon's Gin at about 6.5 million cases, and far behind a Philippine brand, Ginbra San Miguel, that purportedly sold nearly 30 million cases in 2019. In 2011, Bacardi invested in a new home for Bombay, building a new facility at an old paper mill in Hampshire, England. A prominent feature of the site are a pair of conservatories designed by the same firm that created the 2012 London Olympic Cauldron. The two glasshouses, or conservatories, contain growing samples of the botanicals used. One is tropical, and the other is temperate. And there appears to be nothing really stopping Bombay Sapphire from maintaining its position or growing its share. Okay, so let's talk about how Bombay Sapphire is made. Bombay Sapphire proudly states the ingredients on the sides of the bottle. Well, the botanicals at least. These are licorice, cassia bark, coriander seeds, angelica root, juniper berries of course, orris or iris root, lemon peel, almonds, grains of paradise, and cubid berries, also known as long-tail pepper. The production process is also quite well understood. A neutral spirit base is evaporated three times using a carter head still. A carter head still is basically a pot still with a large neck with a botanical basket or a thumper where the botanicals are suspended in the alcohol vapor. 
because they're not really distilling or separating methanol from ethanol and water, they're just reboiling a neutral spirit, they put the botanicals up above the still, then boil it three times, thus allowing the evaporated neutral spirit to flow through the botanicals rather than soaking them in the liquid. The flavors picked up from the botanicals are said to be lighter, more floral than other distillation methods where they're just soaking it in the spirit. And Bombay is one of only a few gins that is made using this method. After what amounts to an infusion of botanicals into the neutral spirit, Bombay Sapphire will be brought to a bottling proof using pure water. In most of the world, it's bottled at 40% ABV, but for the U.S. and duty-free stores, Sapphire is bottled at a higher 47% ABV, and I'm not really sure why. But anyway, it's a big commercial affair that as of 2012 was still being done by G&J Grinnells on contract to Bacardi. So let's talk cocktails and consumption. The gin and tonic is the best way to drink Bombay Sapphire. Bombay plays very nicely with tonic, and the gin and tonic came about because of quinine and tonic would prevent malaria in places like India. But to make it more palatable, the British would add gin to the tonic, and thus the G&T was born. Bombay Sapphire works best with a dry tonic, the type common in the UK and Europe, but not in America. In America, tonic tends to be sweeter. So Bombay actually launched their third permanent member to the Bombay Gin line, a Bombay Sapphire East, and it features a black label and two additional botanicals to the recipe, and it's said to work better with sweeter tonics. But that's about how you drink it. Mix it with a quality tonic or make a martini. So in summary, what do I think of Bombay Sapphire? There's more to the story than I bargained for at the outset, honestly. I thought it would be a pretty quick rundown of a well-known brand, but I'm actually quite glad I found so much to the story behind it to tell. And as the first episode featuring gin, I felt duty-bound to explain the category a bit. Otherwise, it's got a great flavor. I can't believe I kind of overlooked it for so long. But yeah, Bombay Sapphire, this bottle uh, will find a nice home in my liquor cabinet. So that's it for this episode of Liquor and Liqueur Connoisseur. I'm your host, Matt Burchard. Please subscribe and share. Show notes are on liquorandliqueurconnoisseur.com. You can also find the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The show is also on social media. Facebook and Instagram are where I'm most active. I always like hearing from my listeners, so please leave me your feedback. And as always, thank you for listening.